are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Ardent, playful, inquiring. Flannery Cunningham is a composer and musicologist fascinated by vocal expression, thoughtful uses of environmental sound, and auditory perception. She aims to write music that surprises and delights. Her work has been performed at festivals such as Aspen, June and Buffalo, Copeland House's Cultivate, Electroacoustic Barn Dance, and Third Practice Electroacoustic Music Festival. Flannery is attracted to the very old and the very new, especially 13th and 14th century motets and chansons, and contemporary interactive electronics practices. Current projects include commissions from Prism Quartet and Musica Houston, as well as a new quartet for So Percussion. Uh, Let's start. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So we're going to talk about two of your pieces and then kind of give like kind of a snapshot or a preview to something you're actually working on right now. Yeah, exactly. We're going to start off with uh, your piece, We Are the Same as We Have Always Been for bass Mm -hmm. clarinet and live electronics. Just tell me a little bit about this piece. Like how did it get started? Where did the idea come from? You know, what, what ideas are kind of fueling the piece as it as it goes through time yeah absolutely um so i wrote this piece in fall of 2017 and i wrote it for a good friend out at stony brook Um, she's finishing up her dma and performance out at stony brook now Um, and she had she's a really wonderful clarinetist and she had just bought a new bass clarinet Um, So she was sort of like getting to know this new instrument. And I had written a violin electronics piece the year before. That was the sort of same situation where it was a good friend who had just gotten a new instrument. So I kind of like had developed this little niche as like, get to know your instrument pieces. Um, But it was really, you know, like... I, I think it's it was fun for me because it's like exciting to just like delve really deeply into the timbre of not just like an instrument, but that, you know, that particular like this person's bass yeah. clarinet. Um, so, you know, it was great, really great working. So Raisa Thalman is my friend's name who I wrote it for. Uh, I was really awesome working with Raisa on it while I was writing. Um I think I was kind of like working out a lot of stuff at that time. I had just moved into New York um, and I had started my PhD at Penn. So I was commuting back and forth between Philadelphia and New York. Um, After I had the first workshop with Raisa on it, I, um, you know, I had made some recordings then and I was playing them for my husband. Um, And sometimes, you know, it's a bit cringy to like listen to your own stuff, especially rehearsal recordings. So I sort of did the thing where you like put on the recording and you're like, here, listen to this. And then you go run, take a shower because you don't want to listen to your own music. Um, And just hearing it from the other room, like, you know, with some background noise, it was really fascinating because it sort of like provided this layer of abstraction that all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, it's car horns. Like it's just car horns. So I think it was a lot of like, you know, city sounds in the background for me. Um, but the piece basically, it's kind of trying to do this negotiation between like starting in a very kind of like private, intimate place and getting to somewhere that's like very public and loud and noisy and big and kind of like, how do you negotiate between those two worlds? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that in your, um, you know, in your program note about the piece and Mm -hmm. like, where did that, did that idea come from kind of hearing it from the other room, you know, and having that like cl- like closeness and far away and like and and I guess how does the piece actually do that you know how does it yeah. um uh mediate between those two worlds yeah great question so i think part of that was there from the get go as a kind of thought about the piece but it definitely because at the point at which i did that sort of hearing from the other room i had you know maybe half of the piece written then and then sort of that Mm -hmm. kind of analytical listening then reinforced you know okay this is what this piece is doing all right i'm going to run with that for the rest of the piece i do think Mm -hmm. um from the beginning i was interested in there being some moments of really kind of like lyrical melodic writing and then i was playing with these kind of like you know just big pitch shifts and like this kind of really crazy auto tune at the end so just the kind of like core set of like you know, 
musical and kind of effects materials that I was working with seemed to lend themselves to this kind of like movement between something that felt, you know, small and personal and intimate, something that felt very big. Um, but it definitely, I think, was something that kind of got reinforced through through listening. Um, so I think, you know, it, it starts out like there's no processing whatsoever right at the beginning. And then you start to hear there are these little kind of reverb gates that open just for a moment. So you start to hear stuff sort of creep in. And then there are these kind of big sign tone things that come in that are kind of first, it's just the odd numbered partials, you know, basically Raisa presses the pedal, she triggers yeah. some pitch tracking. You get these odd numbered partials that first are kind of almost reinforcing the clarinettiness of the clarinet because, you know, there's more, mm -hmm. more energy at the odd partials and then filling in those even ones to kind of like fill in the gaps there and kind of make it this like hyper instrument. Um, so to me, that's like these moments where we've kind of come out of this private world and it's sort of getting bigger. And I think that's even amplified more at the end of the piece with this kind of big, crazy auto-tune thing. Yeah. So you're kind of, um, you know, that that private world or that intimate world and that like big or open world. It also kind of has this kind of like human versus or not maybe not versus but uh in in kind of a spectrum you have like a human on one side and and technology on the other side yeah definitely i think that's something that i'm really interested in in trying to think through and it's it's hard to do it in a way that gets past just a dichotomy of like human versus machine and I'm interested in yeah, things where right. it's sort of like human augmented by machine or human humanity amplified by machine. But absolutely, I think sort of thinking of those two things mm -hmm. as like these are these are separate things that can sometimes meet and sometimes be quite distinct. Um, and I think that's definitely expressed here. Yeah, you mentioned um, the use of uh, auto tune and we would kind of find mm -hmm. that working at the end. Is that on the live clarinet or is that like in some of the background sounds at the at the end of the piece? Yeah, that's on the live clarinet. Um, so I think the recording okay. that I sent you, which is overall, I think my favorite recording, um, maybe the auto tune doesn't get quite as big and crazy as it has in some other performances. But basically, there's a kind of like randomized auto-tune that happens there. So um, the clarinetist has this kind of repeating melodic passage, which she can sort of repeat ad lib however many times she wants, kind of accelerando and like, you know, getting louder and kind of just getting more energetic. Um, and the auto-tune sort of like is, is unpredictable there. So that's primarily right at mm, that sort of last okay. section of the piece before the kind of little codetta okay. thing. Yeah. Um, you say in your program notes that we are this, we are the same as we have always been plays with an almost slavish love of harmony. <laughs> slavish. Yeah, Where do yeah. you think that comes from in you as a composer and how does it get manifested in the piece? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm such a lover of pitch. You know, I, of course you can't only <laughs> think about your notes, but I, I like notes and I think about them a lot. How, um, how dare you? How dare like, you? <laughs> I know. I know. I should be beyond that. I should be thinking only about timbre. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think this was sort of like me fessing up to the fact that like I, you know, I, pitch is a core concern of mine. And I like, you know, for instance, there's all these pitch shifts that are like this pervasive kind of parallelism throughout a lot of the piece. And I like that sound. And, um, you know, I think to a certain kind of composer that could feel a little simplistic, but I find it really attractive. Um, yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's where I was a little provocative with calling it slavish because I think that it is <laughs> sort of just like, you know, a bias of mine. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, in my, in my composition, uh, you know, like the weekly composition, seminar forum or whatever where all my students and I get together we sometimes listen to pieces and you know especially last uh last year um we were listening you know students were bringing in stuff that they were listening to and it was you know mm -hmm. some of this like it was a lot of you know pieces that were only concerned with timbre and only concerned yeah. with like instrumental noise and stuff like that and we kind of all not all, but a lot of the students and I myself came to the conclusion that it was like, 
yeah, this is cool for a little bit, but then it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't yeah. do anything. Yeah. And the primary the primary motivator of that is pitch. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I think that a lot of contemporary music goes for timbre at the expense of any sort of thinking about pitch because it's like, oh, I don't want to think about that. You know, people have been thinking right. about that forever. But the fact of the matter is, is that just because one element of music is like your concern doesn't make the other elements any less important. So I think I really appreciate that about your music that, you know, pitch still is a concern and it is you you are motivated by pitch, but it's like you're not ignoring anything else at at that expense. Thank you. That's a really kind thing to say. I definitely um I, I totally agree with you that you, you kind of have to be thinking about it all. And of course you have things that you're sort of maybe are more in the forefront of your mind when you're writing, but you kind of have to mm-hmm. like pay attention to everything that's going to be perceptually salient for a listener. Um, so I, I think, you know, I am excited by pitch. I agree that I think a lot of, you know, plenty of contemporary music really engages with it, but plenty doesn't. And I think maybe sometimes it feels a little dangerous because it feels like you can slip into a kind of passe pitch language. And I guess Mm -hmm. I personally feel I would, I, you know, I'm trying to strive for something that feels really sort of personal and distinctive and, you know, exciting and surprising I would rather err on every once in a while I do something a little cheesy than not be concerned with it at all. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. So. <laughs> I mean, when you're writing this piece, you you mm-hmm. know, you mentioned before kind of like the odd partial, even partial thing of the electronics kind of filling in the mm-hmm. the spectrum of the clarinet yeah. in certain ways and and using that kind of in the background of the of the electronics, but mm-hmm. are you also you know, as you are writing melodies, are you writing melodies from kind of a harmonic standpoint, kind of like in the, you know, maybe in the tradition of a solo piece by Bach? Or Mm. are you thinking about harmony as the kind of the background on which the clarinet plays? Or like how you I mean, because you you specifically mentioned harmony in your uh, in your notes, and I'm just kind of wondering, yeah, you know, how does that translate to the page? Because it is a very melodic piece. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions and tough ones. Um, I think, in some ways, maybe <laughs> I should have said no, no, no. It's great. Um, in some ways, maybe I should have said pitch rather than harmony. But I, I do also stand by harmony mm-hmm. for for reasons that I'll explain. So I think actually the opening melody which, you know, gets kind of spun out in all kinds of ways throughout the rest of the piece that I wasn't thinking harmonically in the sense of like a box solo piece where there's this kind of like implied harmony. I mean, I'm sure there is implied harmony, but that wasn't like the melodic framework I was using. That was quite a sort of like instinctive Mm -hmm. melodic writing. Um, Then, you know, later on when there's these kind of like all these doublings of the clarinet through various pitch shifts in the electronics. And I've got this kind of like pervasive triadic language there. I also, so that sort of like um, there's this kind of descending line that you get these kind of, you know, again, a pitch shift, but these kind of like lissandi between the the various pitches of the descending line and the electronics. Uh, And there I'm very much thinking about like, I'm interested in the sort of intervallic qualities of these dyads and then how they sort of, you know, play with the other triadic material that's happening around that with the, the sort of faster moving material. Um, and then I think at the end, again, with the autotune section, I'm interested in something that like has moved from this really, um, you know, pervasive parallelism to something that's more chaotic and more unpredictable. Um, so I think the melodic writing is, I think you're right. It's, it's a melodic piece and the melodic writing is kind of the, core of the spirit but the the harmonicity is kind of what to me has it go places um what does the piece run in and how are you facilitating the synthesis that is happening that's you said that you were like you were really interested in exploring this particular instrument you know from from the player who got a new one so 
Um, is this all, it seems like it's all live. And then that mm -hmm. synthesis, you, you were talking about like doing some pitch tracking. So like, what is it running in? What are the electronics like? Yeah, great question. So the electronics are in Max. Um, I do pretty much all my electronics in Max. Um, and it is live, you know, all live. There are some recordings that are triggered. I think this was actually the first piece. No, not the first, but one of the first pieces Early on when I started working with interactive electronics, I felt really strongly that, you know, everything should be done live and I shouldn't bring any recordings in. And right. I, I quickly like realized that I should get a bit less dogmatic about that. Um, so here I was still like, you know, I think, yeah. I think you realize that eventually. Um, so here I would say I was yeah, in like maybe yeah, the yeah. middle phase of my dogma where I have recordings that I'm like, I could do this live, but it would be cleaner if I did it with a recording. Um, so yeah, I think everything yeah. <laughs> could have been done live here. Um, but yeah, so the synthesis basically, you know, I'm just pitch tracking with the fiddle object, like, you know, tons of people mm -hmm. do. Um, and the way, so the synthesis of the, just the sine tone, like partial thing works. Um, I call it in my patch, the sine tone ray effect. Um, it's very simple. It's just, <laughs> you know, player presses a pedal for electronics cue. And just at that moment, her pitch is pulled and then, you know, first we get kind of fade in of a sine tone on three times, five times, seven times, nine times that frequency. And then yep. a little yep. bit after that, we get a delay and, you know, fade in of two times, four times, six times, eight times, 10 times. Um, and, you know, I've played a little bit with the levels of those partials and that's an attempt to, you know, sort of play with her particular instrument sound. Yeah. Um, there are some really interesting moments where the electronics are producing almost almost this like feedback sound. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden that sound gets transposed or moved or, or something happens to it. Mm. I thought it was a really interesting play on how we interpret those, like, those sounds as mm. listeners and then how you played with our expectations. Mm. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, I think... So, you know, there's moments where those sign tones are still going and then sometimes the pedal is hit for a new sort of pitch polling before those sign tones have faded out. So then you get the kind of like almost comedic kind of swoop downwards or upwards to whatever the yeah, new sign tones yeah. are on. Um, and that's something I, I kind of like. I like the kind of like moment of levity maybe or kind of like it doesn't act as you would expect there. Um, I think, you know, the sort of almost feedback sound that you're talking about probably is coming in the, you know, there are a couple sections with a pretty big reverb and that can be kind of like unpredictable and mm -hmm. what kind of gets spun out the most by the reverb. Um, and I, I ended up liking the, the way that that works. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that I'm interested in. You know, I want my electronics to sound really good, but sometimes when they behave in ways that I didn't initially expect... I don't want to smooth out all the rough edges. Like I'm, I'm excited by some unpredictability there. Well, yeah. And I, th I mean, I thought it was, it was just really interesting, you know, typically, and you know, we've been to enough electronic music festivals to know like, <laughs> Oh boy, something's going wrong. Yeah. But then all of a sudden it like turns on a dime and it's like, Whoa, that was meant. Yeah. At least I'm in, yeah. 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 So that I, I just thought that was really cool you know, how, how you, how you're working with those kind of, those kind of sounds. Uh, where does the title come from? It seems like it may have a poetic origin or is that, is that just you? That's just me. Um, yeah, I write a that's lot of, you. that's just me. I write a lot of my own texts. Um, I, you know, I did a, a minor in creative writing as an undergrad um, so I, I like dealing with text. That title, I think, was, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, again, had just moved into New York, sort of big life transition and this kind of like feeling some sort of like lack of a kind of through line in my life and feeling like, whoa, am I even is it even as me as a child even relevant as me today? Like, is there some sort of connected entity called Flannery Cunningham or really is it just like episodes? <laughs> Um, and it was this sort of like yeah. attempt to convince myself that like, no, 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 there's, there's a Flannery Cunningham here and she's, she's consistent in some way. Um, but yeah, the, the title is my own. I, I wrote it. Well, uh, who are we going to hear on this recording? So this is Raisa Falman, the, the clarinetist that I wrote it for. 
Awesome. So let's listen to it now. This is We Are the Same as We Have Always Been.
Yeah. So next, let's uh, let's go to your kind of in progress work, mm-hmm. and we're just going to hear a small a small section of this. Mm-hmm. But this is your piece that you are working on right now called Groundwater, yeah. and it's you you called it kind of a funky multimedia chamber opera that you're working <laughs> on. So you know what uh, what will we hear? Um, Front, like, where does this fit in the kind of grand scheme? What is the grand scheme of the opera? What yeah. is what does groundwater mean? Like, w- w- tell tell us all about it, or as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't I don't know if there's a spoiler alert in effect, but no, no, know, there's no spoiler can, alert in effect. You can advise us on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you know, maybe I'll walk that back later on if there if I feel like there's a you know a twist at the end, but at the moment there's no spoiler. Um, yeah, so this piece, um, so the section you'll hear is part of, I did a sort of 11 minute section this fall as a kind of like proof of concept for myself that this was going to work. Um, and the core conception of this piece was, I was really interested in trying to build something where sonic processes always leave some kind of like visual results. And then those visual results are often, they sort of a, build up a kind of set, you know, visual world for the piece, but B, are kind of fed back into the sonic processes, you know, new ones. So there's always this kind of like feedback loop returning to prior material, it being transformed in new ways. Um, so the core of that technique uh, or the sort of initial impetus was 
Um, for years, I had been obsessed with the idea of using the action of a piano to print onto cloth. Um, so I got this, actually, you know, Penn was really lovely and got me this like old clunker upright piano. And we put fabric dye on sort of felt pads adhered to the hammers of the piano. And then we drape a piece of cloth down between the strings and the hammers. So basically, as the pianist plays, somebody else is sort of pulling the cloth out of the piano. And, you know, each time a hammer hits the cloth, it's leaving some dye on the cloth. Um, so you get this kind of like, mm -hmm. it's almost like a reverse player piano. You get this kind of print of, you know, what was played. Um, and that gets kind of hung up as a backdrop. And, you know, later in the piece will be transformed in various ways. Um, so I was interested in, you know, thinking about this as a kind of, I thought that this kind of the fabric being pulled from the piano to me kind of works like a visual metaphor for groundwater. And I was thinking a lot about like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the Fable for Tomorrow chapter at the opening where she's, she's, you know, talking really poetically about groundwater and pollution um, and, you know, sort of imagining groundwater as this kind of like memory where, you know, everything that has touched the water is kind of like preserved in it. Mm -hmm. um, I really liked that idea. And I like this sort of, it's almost, to me, it's simultaneously really frightening and really reassuring this idea that like nothing is ever undone. It's only transformed and recycled and dissipated. Um, so that's the kind of core conception of the piece is this kind of like, tracing water and also thinking about water as a kind of memory. Um, so I think the whole opera will end up being 45 minutes to an hour. Um, I'm still torn on whether to call it an opera or not, but it'll be for a singer and chamber ensemble and electronics with visual elements, including video projections. Um, and yeah, hopefully premiering sometime, you know, late 2020 or early 2021, you know, we'll see working on it now. Um, was, you know, I was yeah. very excited by this sort of, you know, proof of concept section and excited to dive in more. It seems like a lot of people are kind of focusing on environmental issues in their, in their art right now, just because, oh my God, you know, like it's, it, it's kind of a scary time, but you yeah. know, you're, I think you're coming at it from a really interesting perspective. And then you said that, do, do you know kind of what some of the visual elements are going to be i mean you said the cloth pulling through the piano mm -hmm. is going to be one of them but what about you know projections and video do you have some of those ideas yet yeah absolutely um so i've just written a couple of grants and hoping to work with this really wonderful um new media sort of interdisciplinary artist melissa f clark uh, on some video for the piece. She has a piece that i absolutely adore called acoustic imaging the hudson where she uses like underwater um, like topographical data to create these really beautiful, mm -hmm. it's almost like these sort of sheets of rain, like looking kind of gray. It, it's hard to describe, but really gorgeous. And I think would play really nicely sort of projected onto the cloth after it's printed by the piano. So we're thinking about yeah. that. We're thinking about some projections maybe from above onto all of the players that maybe end up being a kind of notation so that when something falls on you, you mm -hmm. perform some action. Um, I think at one point, it won't be sort of a literal deconstruction of the piano, but a kind of pseudo deconstruction of the piano where we have some lengths of piano wire and we kind of construct almost a kind of cage around the singer and the string players are bowing on the piano wire. And there's this yeah. kind of like, you know, construction <laughs> yeah. of an object. Um, so yeah, we're, we're definitely working through, through some visual stuff at the moment. Yeah. That, you know, you mentioned you're, you're kind of still toying with the idea of calling it an opera. Um, <laughs> Man, that has been like the the hardest question for me. <laughs> like it, yeah. you know, going forward in contemporary music, it just seems like, you know, what is what makes it an opera anymore? Because there are so many like, you know, so many micro operas and mm -hmm. you know, other things and it's I just personally, I don't know where the line is anymore, especially like when so many things are like, you know, where multimedia takes the place of traditional sets and staging and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't it's, have an answer. It, <laughs> I'm just either. going to it's confound so the question tricky. even more. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm totally yeah. with you. And, you know, I know people who really like opera because calling something an opera feels like claiming this kind of high art 
term in a way that they like. And I know people who kind of think like, oh, don't call it opera. Like that feels right, so yeah. stuffy. But it also um, like opera seems like such a big thing. Like, oh, I wrote an opera. You know, it's like, right, what? Right. <laughs> like yeah, like Wagner? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. How many people were in it? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a tricky issue, too, because um, the singer that I'm working with, who is a good friend, um, she's, you know, has a folk pop duo based out of Seattle. She's really wonderful. Her name's Beth Wesh. And um, her duo is March to May. Um, you know, she doesn't, she, well, she's classically trained. She's a great reader, but she doesn't have like a big operatic vibrato or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I was really attracted to her vocal timbre and that felt really important to me. Um, but you know, I think for a lot of people that kind of bel canto technique, like that's what makes opera opera. So mm-hmm. if you're not employing that, then, you know, maybe, maybe it's not opera to plenty of people. I don't know. Yeah, but but also, does it really matter? You right, know what right. you, what you call it? Yeah, absolutely. It's I'm at yeah. the end of the day, I'm in that camp that I don't, I'm not that fussed about what it's called. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, is uh, is that singer who we're gonna hear on this uh, on this recording? Yes, yes. So this will be the last few minutes of the performance that we did in December, which I think will be. We're adding a violist to the ensemble for the full piece, but otherwise you'll hear the players that are going to be involved in the full scale version. And what, yeah, what is that uh, instrumentation? Mm-hmm. So it's um, Beth Wesha's mezzo-soprano, um, Anya Vu on piano, Aaron Bush on cello, um, and then I'm operating electronics. And then we're going to have Emma Hay joining us on viola for the full piece. Awesome. So let's listen to that excerpt. This is Groundwater. It must have been a dark underground sea that carried you Rising under hills, sinking beneath valleys, a dark sea with waves, waves, waves The next piece that we're going to listen to, I think, is the piece that I was kind of introduced to your music uh, by, uh, and it's. Do you just do you just call it Echo, or is it? I just e- call it Echo. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't make people trip over the K. Yeah, just echoes. Good. <laughs> but yeah, I I heard this at uh Splice Festival when it was in Bowling Green, and I think that's where mm-hmm. I think that's where we met too. Um yeah. so this is uh, a piece for the Splice Ensemble, and it was how how did that uh how did that collaboration come about? Um so you heard the premiere of the piece at Splice Festival. Um, yeah. And I had gone to Splice Institute, I think the year before, I think that's right. Um, and I had mm-hmm. written a solo percussion piece for Adam um, for Splice Institute, had a really great experience working with him on that. Um, so then Splice Ensemble asked if I would write something for them um, to be premiered on Splice Festival, but, you know, played on other occasions as well. Um, and they've been great. They've you know, played the piece a bunch and were really wonderful to work with. Yeah. And we should we should just mention Splice Ensemble consists of uh Adam Vedixis, uh Sam Wells or well Adam Vedixis on uh percussion, Sam Wells on trumpet, and then <laughs> I, I frequent listeners will know how, how much I trip over Keith's last name. Do you know the right way to say it? I think it's Kirchhoff. I think. Kirchhoff. Don't quote me. Okay. Yeah. I mean when I interviewed Keith, Chris Biggs on this, but, <laughs> yeah. well, right. But when I when I interviewed yeah. Chris Biggs on this, and I mean, he and Keith have been working together for so long. It's like, yeah. you know, he w- he said it one way, and I was like, oh, I always thought it was this way. And he's like, you know what? I'm not entirely sure. Anyway. <laughs> it's like, well, oh my yeah, god, Chris, I mean, I'm never gonna get yeah. it right. Yeah. Well, you know, all these people are so friendly, and they're not ever using last names, so you just don't get it. <laughs> It's true. So, He's just Keith, yeah. you know. Yeah, the guy yeah. who plays piano and brews beer. And, yeah. yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for this piece, what is kind of the driving force of this work? Kind of, you know, what propels us forward in time? What's what's making the music go? This piece, I think, for a long time, I was really, really interested in text. I've always been interested in text and vocal works. And for quite a while, I got interested in like, how could I do kind of instrumental analogs of text, um, you know, in ways that feel a little fresher than just, okay, I'm going to imitate sort of like speech rhythm or, you know, pitch contour of speech or something like that. Um, And I think it was an attempt to sort of like, take on board some of the things that I love about vocal writing and about writing words and try to, you know, have them be part of my practice in instrumental composition. Um, so the initial conception here was I wanted to think about vowels as filters. So, you know, vowels, the way that we distinguish vowels is um, through formants, you know, these sort of peaks in the spectral profile that, mm-hmm. you know, are basically in the background what our brain is using to tell whether I'm singing saying or singing, you know, ooh or ee or ah. Um, so I wanted to sort of use spoken or sung, you know, first they're whispered, then they're spoken, then they're sung vowels from the ensemble to act as filters on their instrumental sound to kind of take these sort of noisy instrumental inputs and make these kind of, you know, filtered versions of them that were almost like instrumental versions of vowels um, to kind of like make the ensemble talk in some way. Um, so that kind of happens at the opening and sort of, you know, is used technically throughout. Um, I think this piece definitely, when you were sort of pointing to this kind of like playing with human and machine, I think this piece, probably the most of any of my pieces really does this. There are these kind of like mechanistic sections and then there are these more really kind of human feeling sections. So I think that sort of push and pull is very much part of the formal arc and, you know, how we, we feel like things are, you know, evolving or happening over the course of the piece. Yeah. So can you, can you dive in a little bit deeper into that whole, like using, the like how is that actually working using the vowel of what like a vowel to filter another are you just kind of capturing are you are you capturing peaks in real time and then applying that to like kind of a resonant filter or something like that yeah absolutely so the piece um now exists in like kind of a couple different versions just technically in terms of electronics Uh The very first version, I was doing exactly that. So again, it's a sort of like pedal is pushed, polling of sort of spectral profile, create Mm -hmm. resonant filters, 
at those, you know, with center frequencies on those peaks and filter mm -hmm. sort of noisy inputs, things like Sam's breathing at the beginning, you know, suspended right, yeah. cymbal rolls, things like that. So that was the sort of first version. Eventually, I ended up sort of just asking Splice Ensemble to record, you know, whispered, then spoken, then sung vowels and just did a little sort of analysis there myself. So basically it's like, all right, I know that Keith's E has peaks here and here. And I know that Adam's ooh has peaks here and here. So it's all a little bit more just coded in. Again, still yeah. sort of live determined. Um, I'm basically sort of determining what vowel they're doing, but you know, I'm not sort of real time tracking the spectral profile. Um, and then right. now there's a sort of the third version, which is even a little bit more like, all right, now we're going to like not fuss. And sometimes we're going to use some recordings here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I've, I've totally been in those situations where it's like, man, I want to do it live because then it's like, it's the person on the stage is creating it, but oh my God, it's so much easier to just like. <laughs> it is so much easier. And you know, yeah. I feel like there's room for both, right? Sometimes you like, I have a 15 minute sound check and it needs to be smooth. And sometimes you're like, I really want that performative experience of the person is making the sound and I've got an hour and it's going to be great. So it just depends. That's, that's a really, really smart idea because, you know, like, like you say, those 15 minute sound checks are just such a killer. If one yeah, really thing, are. if one thing doesn't go right, then you, that that's, that's your entire 15 minutes right there. And then yeah, you, you walk into the performance, just like an anxiety ridden wreck of a person. Is this going to go okay? And I mean, with, with like tracking stuff live like that, you know, just something simple as, as like, oh, well, you know, Sam didn't get as close to the mic as he normally does. So we didn't capture Absolutely. that or something yeah. like that. Any, any little thing like that can just like derail the, the whole piece. So I, that, that's really smart to have like multiple versions of that to kind of have like, well, it's good. You know, I'm, I'm walking into Seamus and I get 10 minutes to do this like 15 <laughs> minute piece. So yeah. we're going to go with the safe version or like you say, it's on my, yeah. it's like, it's on my concert. I'm controlling everything. Let's, let's try to do the, the more ambitious version. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So I think it's so worked well for me, but yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Um, I'm just going to say, you know, the danger of that is, of course, the safe version is the one that gets done most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> but, of know, course. <laughs> you have your moments of glory yeah. where you get the full version and you're excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, later, you, I was looking at your uh, your score, your, your perusal score on your website, and later mm -hmm. you have the density of the percussion to modulate the sound of the piano. I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, it's awesome. Uh, second of all, how did like, how are you, are you just kind of counting, like counting attacks, uh, per, per like time interval or something to get that? Yeah, basically I'm doing average distance between attacks. Uh, ah, okay. so basically it's just a kind of, I mean, of, I don't want to take, I don't want to take all your secrets or anything, but no, no, no. I'm, but I'm th that just seemed like a secrets. really cool. <laughs> Yeah, that just seemed like a yeah. really, really cool uh, a thing to to even think about. It was fun. And, you know, it was the sort of thing where, like, I it was a good lesson for me because I realized I had to clue Adam in even more than I initially did in the score. Initially, I just kind of told him, like, okay, the density of your attacks is going to control the rate of this amplitude modulation on Keith's sound. But I kind of needed to tell him the scale at which that was happening for it to be productive for him, too. Mm -hmm. I needed to tell him, if you do attacks that are, you know, a second apart, you're going to get something like this. If you do them that are, you know, 100 milliseconds apart, you're going to get something like this. Um, but once we had sort of worked that out, I, I really had a blast with how that was working. And, you know, I, I handed Adam a ton of control there in that whole section. You know, he's sort of improvising with density first, and then he's really just kind of setting down a groove where I just ask, like, get into something like a rock groove by here and keep in it. Mm -hmm. And he came up with something awesome there. So full credit to Adam for that whole section. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, I think unless you, I mean, I quasi kind of play the drum set 
And I mm-hmm. still, it, it, when I'm when I'm writing for something that has a drum set, I always defer. It was like whatever yeah. you're going to come up with is way cooler than what I could notate on the page. You know, there's so Absolutely. much there's so much feel and and so much uh, nuance that the player brings to it. And Adam, you know, Adam does a great job. Um, yeah. The the you know we talked about the title. It's it's echo, but it's kind of a syllabic deconstruction of mm-hmm. of that word is that how is i mean does that inform how we should perceive the piece kind of de- decon i mean you're getting you're getting at least two of the vowel sounds from that word that you use right. in the piece but uh how else does that word kind of inform how we should listen to it yeah great question um I was a little worried the title might be too cute <laughs> because <laughs> there is, you know, it's, it's a danger. So the whole, you know, that opening section, it is this sort of like, I forget right now who goes first. I think it's Heath is doing the as and Adam's doing the O's, but you need to get this kind of, you know, back and forth. Yeah. Um, and then only at the end we get kind of consonants filled in and we get this little, they are sort of singing this little, we hear an echo line. Um, it's not hugely important to me that people mm. get that text. I like, and you know, echo maybe is just a sort of like convenient word in that, as you say, it, it you know, has a couple of vowels that I use throughout the work. Um, you know, maybe echo isn't even the, the perfect word, but I like this sort of maybe prompting people in some way to be thinking about these kind of, you know, instrumental versions of the vowel that's just been delivered by the human voices that kind of rush in afterwards so that there's this kind of like mimicry of the humans by the instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's listen to this. So we're going to hear the splice ensemble play this and this is echo.
so uh, we've come to the the last question that I always ask the composers and artists who are on the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Yeah, great question. Um, so I actually decided pretty young. Um, I had, you know, grown up playing piano and singing in choirs and I grew up in central Minnesota. Um, so, you know, big choral culture. And I was really lucky Mm -hmm. to have a piano teacher who encouraged me when I was kind of writing little ditties. Um, and I just, you know, I was kind of just writing very intuitively, like at the keyboard and with my voice and, um, sent something into a little like Minnesota music teachers association, you know, contest, Mm -hmm. Um, and got a scholarship to go to this summer camp in Minneapolis. It was called Junior Composers Institute. Then I think it's just junior composers now. Um, And it was the sort of thing where you go, you know, you're taking kind of classes, you write a piece in a week for the other campers, and it's performed at the end of the week. Um, And I'd never done anything like that. And, you know, I was 13. You were supposed to be 14 to go to the camp. I had to get special permission to go. I was super (laughs) homesick. I cried. But, you know, in spite of all of that, like, loved it. Just kind of totally fell in love. Um, You know, went back, you know, a bunch of summers. And really, you know, when I was like 14, 15, kind of decided, like, I think I want to be a composer. Um, I didn't go to conservatory for undergrad. Yeah, I really just I loved it. And I wasn't sure then, of course, you know, I looked, I think I visited Oberlin and really did not have a great time. So I decided pretty early I didn't (laughs) want to go to conservatory. Um, And I, you know, wanted to like study other things as well. Um, But even when I arrived um, at Princeton for undergrad, I, you know, I declared music early, I was pretty invested. Um, And I just, you know, I, I love that composition draws in so many different things for me, I can be thinking about text and literature and ideas and all sorts of things. And it's just like, it's one of the most fun things to do. I think the, sh- the short answer is just, I never found anything more fun than composing. So I stuck with my 14 year old decision. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. So I, I love that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, before we go, can you tell people if they liked what they heard to, uh, today? Could you tell them where you they could find more of your music? And then if also if they had a question they wanted to reach out where they could find you like on social media or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super easy to find. Uh, My website's flannerycunningham.com. My Instagram is also just Flannery Cunningham. (laughs) I'm on Facebook as well. Um, Yeah. And I'm very happy. I think I have my email address on my website as well. You know, people are very free to drop me a line and I'm always happy to kind of talk shop and talk, talk music Um, So any of those places are good. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing this, Flannery. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Rob. It's really great. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.